So are people listening to us now? Are, are people listening to us? Are we on the air? Wow. Welcome to Pearl Jam Radio's Year in Review 1992. I'm your host, The Rob, and we're now taking a glance back 25 years to a time where everything surrounding and involving Pearl Jam was on a continually expansive and rather frenetic pace forward. With their debut album 10 stoking the fires, their energetic concerts would be seen by fans in the smallest of clubs to the largest of festivals, exposing Pearl Jam to an ever-growing fan base. We'll take you through 1992 and all the historic highlights that shot Pearl Jam to the top of the charts and deep into the hearts of... Hi everybody, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. As you may know, we are always amazed how there seems to be just two degrees of separation between people. In our conversation with Austin's Darden Smith last year, we covered some of the history of Americana. Recently, Ronnie was on a call with Mr. Smith, who highly recommended getting in touch with Rob Bleatstein, who we shall learn had co-coined the term Americana in the 90s. Rob has been a connoisseur of several genres of music since he was a kid, and they all share one common thread culture. He entered the radio world with guns blazing, becoming an archivist for new writers of the Purple Sage. In recent years, he became producer of Pearl Jam Radio while sharing his ongoing expertise as host of Grateful Dead Radio, both on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Ronnie mentioned to his brother-in-law, Corey, that Mr. Bleatstein would be a guest on ATB, and Corey, being a Pearl Jam superfan, simply stated, wow, you're going to talk to the Rob. That certainly set our expectations high for this conversation. Rob highlighted his love for the live experience and how the common thread of music fandom culture transcends genres. He also gave us a perspective on just how important Pearl Jam fans are to the musicians and how the fans in return emulate their missions and causes. So here is our conversation with Rob the Rob Bleatstein, recorded at an undisclosed location in Boston, Massachusetts. Bill Janovitz went up and played. Yeah, he, that was actually great. From Buffalo one Town. The, one of the highlights of last night. Yeah, it was psyched to see you went up on stage. Buffalo Town just came out with another album, too. He was just selling Mark Marin too. That's right, he was. Because Mark knew him when he went to BU. So where's the yeah. where's the basement? I don't know if this place actually has a basement. This is the farthest above the basement we've been. It's pretty... That's not true. Mickey Hart was way, way up. Oh, that's a good point. So do I have to get really close like I do on my mic at home, or are you in Pro Tools? Yeah, just Pro Tools. Okay. And then I just got a little Tascam thing there from my four. Okay. Pretty simple. We did one recently where the whole thing just crashed. And then I had to somehow find Dude, the, the files. the radio thing just crashed. I had to have someone just go into my house and reboot my Mac Mini to get my radio station back up. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Happens every once in a while. It, it yeah. didn't happen the six weeks I was in Europe. Thank God. And you just got back from Europe? Yeah. You happened to interview a guy who wrote a Pearl Jam yeah. here in Boston? Here, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, from? From Denmark. From Denmark. From Denmark, yeah. great. Yeah. Is yeah, that how you met him when you're over? No, no, they they just reached out to me. I didn't even I never even heard of him before, which is really crazy that we never met because we've been to so many of the same places over the years and know a lot of the same people. And he's got ties to the band, and he connected the band with a lot of the families from the Roskilde tragedy. I don't know if you know about that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it was, yeah. it was pretty intense. He wrote a good book. What's it called? Pearl Jam. The more you need, the less you get, which is so true. <laughs> and you're just in Boston for the Fenway gig. Yeah. You know Boston very well? I have some great Boston stories. Yeah? <laughs> what was the first show you ever saw here? That one I sent you, The Grateful Dead at Boston Music Hall, November 13th and 14th, 1978. And then my second time in Boston was in 91 for the Boston Garden shows at the Old Garden. Yeah. And I come in and I 
hand the guy my ticket, like, and he's like an older guy, probably worked at the garden since yeah, the day it opened. probably a garden guy. Mm-hmm. I go, hey, uh, can I please have the big half of the ticket stub? I collect them. He proceeds to rip off the tiniest little end that says, like, section, row, seat, and hands it to me and goes... <laughs> Welcome to Boston. Oh, really? And I'm just like, living up to the reputation here. <laughs> yeah, Do I have a... New York written all over me or what? I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. But fun. The shows have always been good. And also, you know, I work with New Rise of the Purple Sage and I've been their archivist. And um, this is really interesting. One of my favorite tapes I ever had as a kid growing up was from Boston Music Hall, December 5th, 1972. And then when I got to know the band later and become their archivist, and I'm getting the tapes and going through stuff, and there's the master reels of that show. Oh, really? And I'm like, oh my, and it sounds amazing. So that's like one of the first things I now, put Where's out. the Boston Music Hall? Yeah, we should probably look okay. that up. Or we should know I've, that ourselves. Because it doesn't exist always, anymore. Yeah, it turned into something else called like maybe some kind of opera house or Tremont something. Oh, was or, it on Tremont Street down yeah. in the uh, okay. district? Yeah. Oh, it probably, it's maybe probably, it was the Boston Opera House. I'm not sure. It, was it could be the great, Boston Opera House or the Wayne Center or something. Hannah, can you look that up for us? great place. Yeah. And Dead played there a lot. You mentioned Riders, so I've always heard of them growing up in the in the you know late 70s, 80s. I I definitely can relate to a lot of stuff that you feel with music. I didn't go to nearly as many shows and dive into it in that way, but I remember hearing a lot about them. After I looked up some info on Rob Bleedstein, I wanted to dive into them a little bit more, and it sounds like they really hit a nerve when you were 10. That's they did. It was the first pedal steel guitar I ever heard. Right, right. Yeah. That's what and I was was uh, it the pedal steel you it think was that did def- it? Yeah, it was absolutely the pedal steel that did it because I was like, what is that? And I don't know what that is, but I'm going where that's taking me. <laughs> and you remember being... <laughs> I my do. daughter's 10. We talk about music sometimes, and they can get it at a young age. But that, to me, says a lot. You knew pretty early on. Matter of fact, my best friend who I growing up, he lives in Vermont now, and I took him to the concert last night. And it was at his house, in his room, and it was his sister's album, his older sister's albums <laughs> that we were listening to. And I think also another part of it is she had pictures of them up on her wall, and they were these long-haired, dope-smoking hippies, and I was like... That's my future. <laughs> and that was kind of the uh, catalyst, it sounds like, for further movement into, into music in your life. Or- Absolutely, yeah. I think I, I, was, I was addicted to records like when I was like four or five years old. I, think. Like, I remember like from my, I think my fifth birthday, I got my first like, record player. I mean, I was definitely into the Beatles. I'd still have my Apple 45s. Is this through your Six. parents that you got this music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents were into like... Barbara Streisand and other stuff, and not rock and roll. They were of the age where they could have been in Elvis, but they weren't. Yeah. But they were into music. Definitely into music, yeah. Definitely into the Beatles. My mom was definitely into the Beatles. I know that. Yeah, and I still have those 45s. Had to be like 68, 69 those years. Yeah, I got all my aunt's old Beatle records, and they were the original records. My mom threw them all out. We never talked about this. I had a very similar story with my dad. Yeah. Yeah. They were moving from New York to, yeah. to the East. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an uncommon story, I'm sure, where we all Tons moved out of, of our albums. houses to go to college and then we left our records behind because then they become kind of obsolete and then, yeah, yeah. then you realize they're just yeah. not. My, th- my thing was when I moved to, I first saw San Francisco when I was 11 and I knew then, I was like, I'm so out of there, I'm so moving here. And it was just a way to do it. When I did move and then I was already in California. Wait, sorry, out of where? 
out Long Island. So I was already living there for three years. And then my mom sold the house in Long Island, moved to the city. And then it was like, you know, do you want to come back and get anything? And I was like, no. And then I, my regret a year later was like, I had this tin, big round tin Yankees garbage can that was filled with baseball cards. Oh, you man. had like Mickey Mantle like, I, and all. Well, it was really weird. Like, I definitely have probably a couple of thousand dollars worth of stuff in there. They have to become rare. So you had yeah. to throw all these baseball cards <laughs> out for them to become rare. So you just helped the process, I guess. So last night, you're at Fenway Park. Baseball is not the focus for the night. But it's Pearl Jam. They, it's the first they, of two shows here in Boston, right? You said you've seen some shows in Fenway. Only Pearl Jam. Oh, well, only Pearl Jam. Okay. Yeah, only Pearl Jam. How from, many times have they played here? This is their second time. They were here in 2016 okay. for two nights. Yeah. Have you been to uh, other ballparks like this for music? Yeah, sure. I'm not the fan of music in stadiums. But I get it. It's a way of reaching a lot of people. They definitely tie in the baseball thing. I mean, Ed's got the thing with the Cubs. You've probably seen that last Play 2 movie. That was, yeah. you know, incredible how that whole thing happened yeah. with them winning the series that year and yeah. them playing Wrigley. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Pearl Jam episode at Wrigley in 2013. The first time they played there, you know, it's been a dream of Ed's probably his whole life to play Wrigley Field where he grew up. I think that's him now. <laughs> At that event, it was one night, we did a serious broadcast. We didn't broadcast a show, but I did a live thing for two hours outside. It was like 110 degrees and 100% humidity. <laughs> it was just a torturous day. Like but it was great. And then everybody's inside. The show starts. We're like seven or eight songs into the show. And security comes on the stage and says, all right, there's a big lightning storm approaching. Uh, we have to evacuate the stadium. Yeah. Two and a half hour delay. You know, there was a lot of wrangling with a lot of people. I know the mayor got involved and I don't know how they did it, but they came back on at 1130 and played to two in the morning. Wow. And when that show ended, that Wrigley Field scoreboard clock was at 2 a.m., and it was something else. It was just. Wow. I mean, you know, if they did that in Boston, they'd have to, you know, they have to keep the, the subway closes at one here. So they'd have to keep that open. But, yeah, and that's the thing. Both of these historic parks are dead smack in these neighborhoods. Yeah. So it's like. You know, well, and it's funny because the Cubs and Sox, that connection's interesting with the, the underdog that for a for hundred yeah, years yeah, yeah, or so, yeah. no, they didn't win. But the connection with Eddie and the foundation to be named later, that's the thing Theo. with uh, Peter Gammons. And uh, he's and done Theo, a lot of work Theo with, too, with right? Theo. Yeah, I think he's performed a few times in Chicago and Boston, even at small clubs here at the Paradise. So it's kind of a neat connection. It's also kind of crazy how Theo Epstein has been involved with these two clubs. He won them both yeah. their championships. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I, it's just crazy. <laughs> he's, a, he's a baseball god to yeah. Boston and, and Chicago. And he plays Definitely. guitar. He does play the guitar along with Peter Gammons. Backing up here, the inspiration you got from going to see those bands when you were 10 didn't turn you into a musician, or did it? Are you, uh, are you a musician? Do you play something? Yeah, but not... But it wasn't yeah. your thing. What it did was I, turn you into a radio guy. Well, I'm a music junkie that I love to play guitar, and I like playing pedal steel guitar, as horrible as I might be. But I realized <laughs> that, you know, being on the stage is not my thing. Oh, okay. 
So I've always knew that going into it from some other angle. But yeah, radio uh, radio was always a huge part of my life. And growing up in the 70s in New York with both WLIR and WNEW were huge parts of my life. And there was that whole East Coast connection with BCN here. Yeah, definitely. And MMR in Philly and CMF in Rochester. There was just that whole string of them. And they all, CMF. They that was were, where I grew up yeah. in Rochester, New York oh, really? with Brother Weez. Yeah. And so, you know, there would be these simulcasts and, they you know, a bunch of them would carry and so you'd be hearing these call letters from these other cities and then you know you're in high school or college and you're traveling around the dead shows and then you're hearing these stations and first time I came to Boston and for those music hall shows and we're staying at a friend's older brother's dorm sleeping on his floor and Mickey and Bobby are in BCN and we're taping it off you know yeah. we're plugging our tape decks into his receiver and taping yeah. that and this was the social media of that yeah, totally. generation. Yeah, yeah. We had a high school radio station, WIQH, in Concord. And several of those kids back then who were, you know, graduated with me, they're still in radio. It's like once it gets in your blood, it's for some whatever reason, it's like if you're they're professional DJs, they're job. not still. Yeah. Well, that's true. And now things have changed in radio. I want to yeah. hear about that. You started in 85. Is that right? Yeah, but first radio I, gig. Um, in high school in New York... I knew that that's what I wanted to do, and I got an internship at New York Tech University, and the guy who I was under was Bob Cranes, who became a big DJ at BCN. So I started doing college radio at San Jose State, and then from there, I was working at a record store. Then I got my first radio gig in 85, you know, when I was out of college. And what were you doing on that radio gig? Was it analysis at all? Were you, were you having commentary, or was it you're spinning songs and you're going to the next? I've been, I've been blessed. So in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a station called KFAT in Gilroy, California, which was a bunch of hippies playing country music and Grateful Dead and Rolling Stones. And yeah, I mean, you'd hear George Jones into the Stones, into Eric Clapton, into the Dead, and all this other stuff. So that turned me on to this whole other world of stuff and I was actually getting tapes of KFAT sent to me in New York in high school that station was a lifestyle if you listen to that station you were a fat head they would do their own concerts called Fat Fries, did broadcasts all the time, too. And that was another huge thing, It's especially um, LIR had the Tuesday night concert series from this club called My Father's Place in Roslyn, the town I grew up in. NEW would always broadcast things like the dead shows from the Capitol Theater or every, everywhere, just all this stuff. All these bands would always play. And they'd always be broadcast. So the taper collector mentality started super young and was always trading tapes. And that was the real social media, the whole tape trading thing of the underground dead tape trading world, which led me to trading tapes with people on the West Coast who became some of my best friends. I mean, like one, one person who I consider my total brother in the world to this day, I met when I was 15 through trading dead tapes in the mail and putting an ad in Dead Relics magazine. Greetings from the hallowed intersection of Post and Steiner Streets in San Francisco. I'm Rob Bleatstein, and I'll be your guide for this journey back to the Winterland Ballroom and one of the Dead's more legendary performances, this one known as Thursday Night at Winterland, December 29th, 1977. This magical evening is filled with the raw, blistering arena rock and roll sound that the band had been fine-tuning all year long in 1977, as well as some of the most tranquil and psychedelic passages they've ever laid down. It was also my first night ever in Winterland, and the impressions left on this then 16-year-old mind still linger on all these years later. 
The power the music created on 1229.77 has not only withstood the passage of time, but has been immortalized as a CD release. Yeah, that, that really is that grassroots web that was connected to the fans through tapes. You really met a brotherhood of people that shared the same love. But at the same time, there was that tangible sharing of things, which kind of made it, I think, that was pre-email. Yeah, it was, it was pre-everything. And that was it, too. It was like... And you met people at the shows, and you would you couldn't get your tape deck in. You could patch into someone that night, or you would at least hook up with them, and they would send you a copy the next day or something like that. And were you like that. were you one of the guys that had the high quality microphone recording devices? I had a tape. Yeah, I had a. I did a bunch of masters for a while. I didn't invest in microphones. That was the thing. You you'd bring your deck in. And you'd get to patch out out of someone that you met and knew and going out of their mics. Those were the I, you sick know, tapes. I, and, I, and I did do a few. Like you know, When I got my Sony 158, which was a really big unit and compared to... It's like the size of your MacBook <laughs> yeah. right there, actually, but a lot heavier. The first thing I ever recorded with that was Neil Young, Russ Never Sleeps at, at Madison Square Garden. I had my own microphones for that. A few now you others. can't even bring that stuff in. It's, it's just a whole that, It was a whole all, other... You can't even it was compare just a whole it, but, other world, yeah, you know? It was like... I don't know what the dead do now, but I know they had an open tape they yeah, they would. They would. Yeah, they the wanted. dead like went along with it, and then it became such a humongous thing that they, that they had to set up a section and sold tickets for taper sections. Uh, right, right. But by that time, I was out of it. You know, I didn't last too long as a actual taper. You know, but then I became a taper once I was sort of in a more professional world and knowing bands and knowing road crews and stuff. It was like patch me into the board. I don't want an audience tape. I want the board feed. <laughs> you, right. You're like so, I graduated to the board. I right graduated now. to the board. Yeah, <laughs> and then I did that for a long long time into the whole dat era and that used to be like a total obsession and thing and then i finally i'm like i don't think i care anymore <laughs> <laughs> well, although i have been talked into a few things there there have been a few events where i'm able to go and no one else was able to get in and none of the tapers could get in and they're like dude you have to do it it's kind of come full circle a little bit because of Sirius Satellite. I mean, we were listening. There was a Bogota, Columbia, Pearl Jam that we listened to on the way in. And then there was another one that was in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, and yeah. So that's the thing now between whether you're on the, the Dead Channel, the Pearl Jam Channel, there's a DMB channel now. The good thing with both the Dead and Pearl Jam, which makes a channel really doable, is that you have two bands that, number one, never play the same show twice. Right and officially release their stuff. So you have this incredible archive of great sounding material. Now, those are the two shows you're currently producing and started as producer. Yeah, I, I do the, I produce the concerts on the Grateful Dead channel and produce concerts and specials and host and do other things on the Pearl Jam channel. Is that sort of like a rolling thing where you can you have a great show in mind and you put together some type of well, like master bo- playlist? Bo- both, both channels on Sirius play seven concerts a week. Each one gets aired three times a week right. over a certain time slot. So my thing is to host those shows and talk about those shows, introduce them. I know you do a lot of traveling. You, you're right here with us in Boston. When we were talking on, over Facebook, you were out in Europe. Do you incorporate the physical presence of you being there to your dialogue? Absolutely. And especially on a dead thing, it's like if I'm talking about a concert that I was at in the 
days, like today is the 41st anniversary of Englishtown, New Jersey, which was my Woodstock, basically. For the dead. For my life. I mean, it was 150,000 people in a field in New Jersey. It was the New Riders, Marshall Tucker, and the dead. It was 100 <laughs> degrees. I was 15 years old. I went with a bunch of friends. We, we went a day and a half early, and the amount of illicit and non-illicit substances that were taken by everybody there and your memory is amazing yeah i don't know (laughs) 41 years today that i can talk about what happened 20 minutes ago good luck i remember my first dead show it was this year we went to dead and company that's not a dead show yeah (laughs) it isn't isn't exactly it's not a dead show i know i know it's so the culture and that's one thing we want to talk about is that there's something we all know that dead and company is a different entity and there's been so many different you know iterations of the dead since the 60s and 70s but there's something about that culture in the park lot that never changes it's the spirit again it's sort of the lifestyle i think the quote came from garcia that you know you can't run away with the circus anymore so this is like the last vestige of that and i think for these other newer generations that it's still true you thought i'd be surprised at the party that was going on outside yeah i don't know about party but it's not it's 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 a different type of tailgating it's not you can't even call it that it's well, I mean, they the got merchandise that people food that and want to see each other, and you know, it's there's a lot of love. Create a little a town of, there, almost. Yeah, yeah. A I love mean, town. they call it Shakedown Street, yeah. and you know, it's a good vibe. That's part of what killed the Grateful Dead scene, the late '80s, early '90s, when that became so big, and huh. you had more people showing up to sell drugs and do things in the parking lot, and have no interest of even going to the concert or right. being at the concert, yeah. and didn't have tickets for the concert. That just kind of destroyed the whole thing. Interesting. The legal issue there, yeah. Right in the early '90s was coincidentally right when fish started to blast off mm-hmm. you know i remember going to fish when they first started and you know when they're first getting big in 89 in a university of vermont in burlington they seemed to sort of take on some of the grateful dead uh, absolutely people some of the people that followed the dead were now adopted almost by the fish world i think a little bit of that i think they they've done pretty good of getting their own world going for sure well, that's true. Um, I think, yeah, there's, without a doubt, there's a certain element of dead fans who are fish fans. The reason I bring that up is that I didn't realize when you just said that in the early 90s, it, the bubble could have bursted for the dead. And it's just kind of coincidence almost that Fish was there to take. Well, it, it, it did. I mean, you had the band guys needed to like send out a letter to the deadhead saying, look, you need to chill out and you can't do this in the parking lot. And, so, and, and Garcia famously was like, I'm not signing the fucking letter. You, you send a lot of letter. I'm not signing the where, where did they letter. send the letters? To all the, to the, to the to, you know, they had a huge mailing list. Okay, and, yeah. you know. Like a physical mailing list. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they <laughs> put a stamp on it. Yeah. Around that time, late 80s, early 90s, this is when Pearl Jam came in, and now they kind of have the same... It's interesting, because between those two bands, there's a bunch of similarities and a bunch of non-similarities. There's not really a similarity in the music, but there's a similarity in the symbiosis between them and the fans, and what goes on, what happens between the stage and the fans on certain given nights, just like at a dead show. They're their own unit. They do what they want. They're very insular. They've got their world taken care of. They're not particularly too open to certain outside influences just like the dead you know it's a, you know they've got a crew that's been with them forever just like the dead and there was a certain amount of deadheads that did get into Pearl that do are into Pearl Jam and then a certain amount that aren't like I turn a lot of my friends onto mm. it 
and they can handle some of the acoustic sides, but they can't handle the punk rock stuff at all. It works for some people, and it doesn't work for others. Well, it's so interesting, the Venn diagram you can picture there. Like, who are the people that actually genuinely love both? But the fact is, is that you cannot like the other music, but still appreciate the fact that there's a similar culture. People have said, like, you know, the way they, the way that both of them do their business is sort of similar, but I've always had a problem with that whole thing of, like, you know, oh, the Grateful Dead, you know, created this way of doing business and stuff. I'm like, they were always broke as far as I knew. (laughs) Until the very end when they were like, you know, the highest grossing band in the last couple of years. But, you know, I don't know. They had money and they would blow it all and go to Egypt and do great things like that. That documentary, there's a recent documentary, is pretty big. Let's Play 2 or Pearl Jam 20? Project 20. Yeah, camera. So I saw that, that, and it it really astounded me, like, the passion of the fans. What I love about that movie is, like, yeah, you don't even have to know anything about the band or like the band at all, but you can't watch that movie and not love those guys for what they've been through and how they deal with things and how they persevere and all of it. My uh, brother-in-law, Corey, and and my sister, Laura, have been um, really big Pearl Jam fans. They see shows every year. So uh, brother-in-law Corey, has a, he's a big fan of yours. You call yeah, him brother-in-law he, Corey? He, he, yeah, can you call him the Corey for us? <laughs> the Corey? That's right. You're the, you're the oh, Rob, man. aren't you? Uh, All right, a, the Corey. Here, a here's whole a whole other story. Here, here's a question. Talk about how the fans and the impact of Pearl Jam fans that they may have on the band. Well, I think it's, again, it's that symbiosis, that synergy on certain nights. Like, this happened in Seattle on the second night in Seattle a few weeks ago, where just from the first note, man, there was just an energy in that. And then we are, again, you're in Safeco Field. There's 47,000 people. And somehow there's this energy and this intimacy that is overriding everything. And it's like everything is perfect. And the crowd's on fire. The band is on fire. And there's those nights where they're really feeding off each other. Hmm. And that's the thing. That's why you keep going back. That's why you keep going back every night. You want that again. And what about in the touring and the album, the writing, what they do off stage? Do we know what kind of impact their fans have on the band as a unit, as its own company? Well, I think what the band really loves from the fans more than anything is how the fans have taken on the band's activism role. Like the band is very socially and politically active in causes that are close to them and always have been. They have their Vitology Foundation. But they've been doing benefits since day one for pro-choice, Tibetan freedom, youth cares, all these kinds of movements that, you know, vote for change. All these things over the years that, that have, they've been involved in. And Mike McCready has Crohn's, and he's very involved in the Crohn's and Colitis Association. He's, the, a, he's a lead guitarist, Lead guitarist, right? yeah. And Stone Gossard is involved in a lot of environmental issues in, in, in Washington State and across the globe. And Eddie and his wife, Jill, are involved in this um, EB foundation, which is this really horrible skin disease that... It's just like one of the most brutal things you've ever... Jeff Amen, the bass player, he builds skate parks all over the country in in some Native American properties up in Montana. And they're all doing great things. And the fans have taken that on. There's a a fan-run organization called the Wishlist Foundation that holds these pre-parties before every concert. They've raised over a million dollars. And then what the band just did with these home shows in Seattle, these two shows at Safeco Field were labeled the home shows, where these are called the away shows, all these stadium shows. They got together with a lot of big and small businesses and philanthropic people in Seattle and raised over $11 million for homelessness in Seattle with those two concerts. And 
there was a Pearl Jam branded beer, bourbon, chocolate, all this stuff, <laughs> and all these companies. And there was a day on August 8th where all these restaurants around Seattle were giving 10% of their proceeds to the movement. Some of the fans who were sleeping out online were raising money just there from people walking by and giving it to organizations. And it's like just everybody getting involved. I think that is what the fans do that affects the band more than anything. Thank yeah. you, Vicori, for yeah. asking that question. Yeah. And that's another symbolic thing between the Dead and Pearl Jam, with the, you know the Dead with their Rex Foundation and the benefits that they always did over the years. That both these bands have that wing going as well. I want to get back to satellite radio. Were you in on it very, very early to do the band-based station? I got in as a producer host on the Grateful Dead channel. So the channel already existed? When the channel started. Had just started. You were hired as producer in what, 2007? As one of them, yeah, yeah. That's really kind of a different tack on radio, doing a band-based I approached Pearl Jam's management about doing a all Pearl Jam channel on the internet in 2006 because I was working for another internet radio company at the time doing an American channel. I was doing a Grateful Dead channel on that and then I was doing a Bluegrass channel and I was doing all these channels and I was like, I want to do a Pearl Jam channel. And then I reached out to the band and said, well, I need your blessing to do this. And they were like, they were like well, go ahead. And I was like, <laughs> all right, well, that'd be a lot of work. And this company really does not deserve a Pearl Jam channel. So, and then that company went under. Did that plant the seed for the serious Pearl Jam? Well, here's the deal with that. When I got laid off from that internet company that yeah. I was working for doing five channels at the time in the beginning of 2009, I was like, okay, what's next? Got to work for Pearl Jam somehow. How am I going to make this happen? They're a band that has everything and doesn't need anything. <laughs> but they don't have a radio station on their website. That's what they need, and that's what I could do for them. So I pitched it to them. and To Pearl Jam. Yeah, to yeah. Pearl Jam directly. And they liked the idea, but they were like, well, it's not really a priority. So, But let's just keep talking about it because it's a good idea. And if it ever does happen, you're definitely the guy to do it. I'm like, okay, cool. It took a year, and we figured out a way to make it work. So I launched Pearl Jam Radio on the band's website, on PearlJam.com, in May of 2010, the day their spring tour started in Kansas huh. City. So I did that whole spring tour, was doing tour reports from that, and programming it every day from that. And then that was then it was six months later, Pearl Jam told me that Sirius was interested in doing a channel. And I was like, well, cool. I already worked there part-time, so I should be building that channel but you for didn't- hear that through Sirius you heard it through Pearl Jam Sirius had reached out to Pearl Jam saying we want to do a channel and they said well "Well, we got a guy named Rob that's already doing this we got a guy named Rob who already works for you on your Grateful Dead channel and and boom and boom I wanted to ask about oh no I I know what I want to mention Darden Smith was the guy that connected me to you oh right right (laughs) right that's why we're sitting here (laughs) and cheers to Darden thank you Darden yeah. How do you know Darden? You met him as I think a he fan when been, he was performing. Yeah, type of thing? I think he might have been opening for like Nancy Griffith or Robert Earl Keane or somebody yeah, coming probably. through town and right. saw him open yeah. up. And then I think he had a you know I think he was on Columbia at the time. He just came out with the, he just came out with a book. He just came out with a book. Yeah. What's the name oh, of it? Yeah. The art of art of listening. Art of listening. I think. No, no. Art of art of not listening. No. <laughs> art of confusion. Sorry, Darden. Mm. Um, but it. anyway, I had a, the full circle was interesting because I just was talking to him the other day. We we're working on a project, songwriting with soldiers. His, right, his, he told uh, me all about that, and I'm trying. Awesome. Ed has a connection with that too, and somehow they've got to somehow meet somehow. Yeah, let's try to do that. 
I'm working on a study now looking at veterans with Darden and a guy named James House, who's a singer, songwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know James? With him, yeah. He has a brand new album out now. He's awesome. And so both of them are going to work with veterans here at Mass General at MGH. And we're going to look at pre and post how they do, do like a little pilot study to see how they do with PTSD, with the songwriting. So um, call Eddie, see if he wants to be involved. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that. It's also Mary Gaucher. You know Mary Gaucher? Yes. Oh, yeah. We talked to her as well. Yeah, she's great. She's great. So many good ones. And that's just it. That world is, you know, that's been my world. Okay, it was another time in my life where I was like, I'm at a point where I'm at a crossroads. I need a gig. What am I going to do? My jobs aren't in the paper or on Craigslist. They just need to be created. <laughs> so that was a whole other thing. It was, uh, it was at that point in time where I'd been involved with all these people for all these years in alt country, progressive country, whatever you want to call it, good country. And at that point in the 90s, you know, it was all about Garth Brooks and Shania Twain who were taking over the world and, you know, Emmy Lou and Willie and Johnny Cash and Waylon couldn't get played on the radio anymore. And then people like Lucinda and Robert O'Keen and Joe Ely and Jim Lauderdale and all these other people couldn't get arrested anywhere. But, you know, they'd get played on the public radio stations all over the country and they'd be playing the coffee houses and they'd be playing the bluegrass festivals. So they had followings. They were making great records. They were critically acclaimed, but they had no radio home. Rock has multi-formats. Jazz has multi-formats. Classical has multi Why can't country have one other goddamn format? Yeah. It's like, come on. Yeah. And at that point, in 1994, I was like, I could not use the word alternative. Yeah. That was a station Pearl Jam was played on, you know. Yeah. But it was just at that point, I was like, I cannot call this chart the alternative country chart. It just can't be called that. Yeah. And actually, I reached out to Peter Rowan, who I've been seeing since I was 13, known forever, I was like, hey, man, can I steal your crucial country term? So I walked into the Gavin Report, which is a trade magazine in San Francisco. Crucial country. And I said, hey, let's have a crucial country chart as an alternative thing. And they're like, we like that idea, but that name won't work at all because that means the other country is not. I go, yeah, exactly. And they're like, <laughs> right. well, we, my we, point. well we, we, we rely on advertising right. from those people, uh, so that's yeah. not really going to fly. So then, we were looking for Then we'll another. open inconsequential country. So we were looking for a name of it, and I was working with a fellow named John Grimson at the time who would, was working at Warner Brothers Nashville, and he was leaving that gig there to go do promotion on his own and he was using the term Americana and at K-Hip first radio station I worked at was called K-Hip which was all the DJs from K-Fat after K-Fat went under at K-Hip our tag was American Music which we stole from the Blasters from their song Dave Alvin's song American Music so I was like Okay, Americana, American music, that sort of works. And But at first I was really turned off of it because I was like, Americana, that makes me think of Ethan Allen Furniture. And then I spent another night thinking about it in terms of music only. Well, it means nothing in terms of music, so that's kind of great. That gives us a chance to Oh, because it could be a it. word, like a, a genre in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Are you trying to tell us so, you coined the phrase Americana? Is that what you're trying to say? I, was, I share it with John Grimson, <laughs> okay. yeah. Right. yeah. You co-coined. Coined? Well, yeah. What I love about it is, you know, this whole thing has morphed into this, you know, this Americana Music Association. There's now this amazing conference, Americana Fest, that happens in Nashville. My intention, the whole thing of it was 
was to create an alternative country format right. that you could be in your car anywhere in the country and be able to hear this music. Right. That was it. And the other motivation really was just for me to promote my friends, Robert O'Keefe and Lucinda Williams and <laughs> Emmy Lou and the people I love. But yeah, so it's morphed into this whole other thing, which is yeah. fantastic. You brought up uh, Rodney Crowell. I heard him play a couple songs live in Nashville. My mouth just dropped. I was like, they're oh. unbelievable songs. Oh my God. Rodney and Guy Clark and Towns of Anzana and Have you, you know, heard those him, guys. Rodney Crowell? I've heard the name, but I, don't, I couldn't tell you. I got to say, Austin City Limits changed my life when I was I don't know, 14 or something, huh. watching on Channel 13 in New York. And the first one I ever saw was Guy Clark. I saw him do the song Last Gunfighter Ballad and my 14-year-old jaws just on the floor in my living room in New York. And the, this guy's unbelievable. I, I think I latched onto all this stuff because it was so foreign from a New York experience. I'm going where that is. On your radio shows, do you have a voice to sort of be advocates and recommend different maybe diamonds in the rough that some new generation may not have heard of i think i need to create that that's like the next the two eyes the the dead and the pearl gem eyes are currently active the americana eye needs to get something new going back to fenway and and bill janovitz uh, who's a local guy that chuck was mentioning was on the stage last night does pearl jam do that in a lot of different towns is that is that or is that rare where they bring up they have surprises and they bring people up like that it's happened here and there over the years for sure um Brandy Carlisle came out in mm-hmm. Seattle, which is great. Her and Mike McCready are really tight, and they just recorded her song oh, okay. again today. So Sting came out with them two years ago at Madison yeah. Square Garden. Really? Totally unannounced. What did they sing? Pearl Jam have been know? covering Driven to Tears since oh. 2003. Oh, really? Yeah. I would love to see so, that. But this is great. They just start the song, don't even announce it. He just walks out <laughs> mid-song, grabs the mic, does like the second verse, kills it and then just like drops the mic and walks off while the song's still going i'm like i'm like that's like the most rock and roll thing sting has done since the police broke up you said there was a a long story behind it maybe you can give us a short version why do they call you the rob oh god is that something you don't want to talk about i might regret it at this point in time the name (laughs) but uh all right um come on the Corey wants to know (laughs) so does the ron and the chuck I didn't even think the Michelle wants to know. Where's the Hannah? All right. It has to do with some agriculture in Northern California. Yeah. Where 10 years ago, um, I provided some seedlings to a certain individual. And this really beautiful, crazy indica bush came out of the ground. That certain farmer called that bush the rob ah. um, <laughs> the rob so and then in 2008 um on the pearl gem tour my young friend zach newman was working for spin magazine doing a little video log on the pearl gem tour where he was covering the tour for spin and so he's calling me the rob on that thing so <laughs> it came together. sort of started there so when i started the Pearl Jam radio channel on PearlJam.com. Mm. I was like, "Oh Christ, what am I?" You know, my whole career has been a, just a, a string of really bad radio names. Like what? Well, I should have stuck with the one that I had in college, my first one, which was Rob Burns, which was another mm. weed reference. Yeah. I've been, you know, my life is just one big weed reference right. after the next. Right. It was like a verb. <laughs> your your so, last name was a verb. Yeah, so I call it. So I call up Zach, and I was like. I was like, dude, what am I calling myself on this thing? You know, it's like... Um, for Pearl Jam Radio. Yeah, for yeah, Pearl yeah, Jam Radio. Yeah. He goes, you're the motherfucking Rob. What else? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
So I was like, okay. And I went with it. And uh, there so go. there it is. And so right. now I'm stuck with it. And it was interesting, too, because when I started on the Dead channel on Sirius, I was like, well, what do you want me to refer to myself as? They're like, well, use your name because you're known in the world and community as who you are. You like, mean your full name or yeah, the rub? Yeah, my long Jewish name. Yeah, but, you know, the interesting thing is now, like, there's so many musicians. None of them use their last names. Like, everyone's using their first and middle names, as, and their middle yeah. name is their last name. I guess that's popular in radio, too, you know. Enjoy the show <laughs> tomorrow night. I wish you were coming. I know, me too, but. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you in Boston. You gonna come back soon? Good to be here, man. You know, you know. If I don't OD on lobster, I'll uh, no, no, right. I don't eat lobster. I'm not a lobster oh my guy. god! I know. Have you had a lot since you've been here? Yeah. All right. Well, cheers to lobster and, and you being here in Boston. I'm gonna try to find you tomorrow. As Tenacious D would say, you're gonna get your ass blown out. <laughs> well, that's a great image. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Before we sign off, why don't we give him a proper radio send-off? Here he is on the job back home at Sirius XM. That was the beautiful and highly emotional comeback, a track that Ed Vedder wrote in tribute to his very close friend Johnny Ramone upon his passing in 2004, and a song that continues to serve as a touchstone for dealing with loss. And just as Pearl Jam's Avocado album opens up with a heavy punch, the album closes out with an equally as heavy emotional wallop as Comeback is followed up with Inside Job. One of the greatest and most hopeful songs you may ever come across, this is guitarist Mike McCready's absolute gem. Mike wrote the music and the words to Inside Job and reveals his lyric writer side, which until this point many fans had no idea existed. Mike's song has inspired so many, and you can bet those lyrics are tattooed on many fans as well. Here's Mike McCready on writing Inside Job. Inside Job was written um, it was uh, before that record, the avocado record, uh, before we were doing that, uh, obviously. And when we were on tour, when we were actually in South America, um, I had, we had written the music, the da- the, there was a demo for it, and, and Ed didn't have time to come, come up with lyrics for it. And so when we were in South America, when, in fact, San Paulo, Brazil, um, I, I just, like, I really wanted that song to happen, so I just wrote some lyrics out and tried to sing them myself and just some stuff that I was feeling at the time, and, and I brought him up to him at, at, to his room, and he was like, whoa, thanks, man. This is, you, I remember he said something like, you're... It's like you gave me an extra helping of dinner or something. I can't remember. It was some kind of allusion to dinner. And, and so he, he liked the lyrics and he changed one thing around. And um, it was more out of kind of like I want this song to happen. So I'm going to write the lyrics for it right now. And, and I was real nervous about it because I've never really. I mean, I wrote a couple some lyrics for Rockford's a long time ago. But this one I actually sat down and played and sang to him while, while, to Ed while, while, while showing him uh, the lyrics. And so then, then he took them and. And we did it later on. So it kind of came out of a, more of acts of desperation than anything else. Like, I really want that song to happen because I felt like I had a vision for it. And we would like to thank the Rob for joining us and for his wonderful conversation. You can check out both of his shows and learn more about them at SiriusXM.com forward slash Pearl Jam Radio and SiriusXM.com forward slash Grateful Dead. Have a listen if you have not already. Go to AboveTheBasement.com. You can join us on Patreon. Sign up for our newsletter. Listen and subscribe to our podcast. Like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.
How would you like to join us in creating great conversations that inspire and connect? Patreon is a membership platform that provides a way for creators like us to build relationships and provide exclusive experiences to subscribers or patrons. We have been self-financed since we got off the ground in June of 2016, but in order to continue to fully invest all we can in each episode, we need your patronage. For more information, please go to patreon.com forward slash above the basement.